You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg Podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Organic gardening is enjoying a renaissance now that we're becoming more careful about how our food is grown and harvested. There was a time, though, when organic was the only option. Historic gardener Wesley Green joins us now to talk about his new book, Vegetable Gardening the Colonial Williamsburg Way. Wesley, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Tell us who you are in the historic area. Where are we going to find you? Right across the street from Bruton Parish Church. We have a little garden and also a garden shop. So you are our historic gardener. You spend every day of every year in, in the garden. Yes, there's two of us in the garden. And so those practices you try to keep as closely to what would have been practiced in the 18th century as you can. What does that mean? Exactly. Well... All of your garden books, with the exception of the first garden book, which was written here in Williamsburg by John Randolph, are coming to us from England. So all the um, aristocracy, as well as middle class, will have gardening books they purchase in town from English garden writers. So they're using the same garden sources which we are using. They're then taking that advice and changing it to fit Virginia conditions, which are very different from English conditions. How are Virginia conditions different from English conditions? Now we're hotter in the summer, we're cold in the winter, and we're drier at all times. So that affected just the transition from England to the Americas. You also mention in your book that the 18th century Virginia is not the 21st century Virginia in terms of climate. What changes have we seen just in the intervening centuries? Well, it was much colder up until about the time of the Revolution. Geologists some talk, sometimes talk about this as a mini ice age. So we then take the advice from Mr. Randolph written here in Williamsburg in the 18th century and change it to suit 21st century conditions. Which are warmer. Yes. So let's just talk about um, the, the life of the garden. Um, and, and we talked, too, about things being organic. Yes, we were organic gardeners before we knew we were organic gardeners or had any desire to be organic gardeners. In fact, we have the organic gardening tools. We certainly don't have the mindset. The mindset of the 18th century gardeners is that if it crawled, hopped, flitted, or flew, we wanted to kill it. So you see extravagant means for killing earthworms, for example, which we now think is beneficial. Um, many devices for killing ants, which sometimes are a nuisance in the house, but not a problem in the garden. So we really don't have what we think of a modern, organic, in tune with nature sort of mindset. We're just not very good at killing them. <laughs> uh, what are some of the methods that would have been used in the 18th century for pest control? Well, some things that really do work for us is the use of lime water. In fact, our masons, um, our brick makers, burn down shells to produce the lime. We then use that to make a slurry, which is just a water-lime mix. We find that's very good for controlling aphids on melons, for example. Just a simple board trap in our frames. We have frames where we raise lettuces, for example. It's an ideal slug habitat. So just by putting boards in the frames and turning them over every morning, the slugs will seek a home under the boards, and then you squash the, the slugs, and that's very effective in controlling slugs. Um, sulfur, what they call brimstone, was used. Tobacco dust was used. And you are also... Um using cold frames and manure and, and all types of um, organic methods of managing the heat and the temperature in the garden. Uh, we start to expand the growing season. Now, there, of course, there's a much more seasonality to the diet in the 18th century. You eat peas in June, you don't eat peas in September. But through the use of frames, hotbeds, which are pits filled with manure to provide a bottom heat, we start to extend, extend the season and begin to move towards what we take for granted today, and that's having any fruit, any vegetable, any day of the year. Of course, this, again, is, is restricted to the wealthier sort. Vegetables are a small part of the diet and really more of a luxury item because in the end, it's easier to raise a hog than it is a cauliflower. 
So Englishman's diet is primarily meat and grain. Probably 90% of Virginians are living on a diet that's 60-70% corn. So vegetables are luxury items. And one of the nice things about this is because they are considered luxury items, there's much more care, much more thought going to raising things like cauliflowers, for example. You see these extravagant devices, digging these great ditches and filling with manure and shelling them with boxes at night because they place so much more importance than perhaps we do today when we just go to the grocery store and pick them off the shelf. We've talked about there being a difference uh, in the methods, of the organic methods of, of keeping a garden. The look of the garden is actually very different as well, the, the types of plants that are grown. Um, talk to me about the, the unexpected things that people will find in the garden that you tend. Well, we have some plants that have fallen out of favor. Um, for example, what the English call a broad bean, um, most people know by the Italian name of fava beans. Our new world bean is called bean, the bean we're all familiar with, is because when the first explorers arrived here, it put them in mind of the fava bean, which we've been eating for 10,000 years in Europe, so we call it bean. Um, in fact, both Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Washington are miserable failures of growing this bean. It's the one thing I have precedence over them in. But the broad bean has fallen out of the American diet. And then there's the case of what I would call rocket, you would call arugula. Um, very popular salad green in the 17th century, falls entirely out of favor in the 18th century, and now is back in fashion today in the 21st century. Um, there's some unusual roots, such as scorzonero and salsify. There's a celery substitute called cardoon, which few Americans know. But by and large, the most popular vegetables in the 18th century are still popular today. The beans, the cabbages, the peppers. Tomatoes are just coming into use as a sauce, never as a ripe fruit, never on a salad, never on a sandwich. But um, we're starting to see tomatoes as a sauce here in town. If I keep a garden, it's going to be something that I tend, uh, maybe I'll go water it after work and maybe get into it on the weekend to keep up with it. The garden that you keep is a full-time job for two people. Is, is that a difference in gardens today and gardens in the 18th century, that there would have been a dedicated professional expert tending that garden every day? We had professional English-trained gardeners that worked at both the palace and the college throughout the 18th century. And we have a few examples of professional gardeners working in town and on local plantations, but most gardeners in 18th century Williamsburg and Virginia were enslaved gardeners. Of course, most families do not have that resource. Um, many families probably don't keep gardens at all. A vegetable garden in the 18th century, like a vegetable garden in the 21st century, provides luxuries. It does not provide staples, because again, an Englishman's diet is primarily meat and grain. Um, you mentioned water. That's the limiting feature of gardening in the South. Uh, we find on dry years that between hauling the water from the well, filling up the big cistern or vat in the middle of the garden, putting it out with watering cans, we can move 4,000 pounds a day and not keep up. Now, you as a typical housewife are not going to do that yourself. You're at the mercy of the weather, and which is one of the reasons vegetables become luxury items. Now, the vegetable garden that colonial Virginians can keep when water's not an issue is a winter garden. The collard greens, the kales, the turnips, all those things that become associated with southern cuisine is founded because the winter garden is our garden. So you look at diaries in the early part of the year in the 18th century, in the months of February, March, April, as we are now, it fills up their pork and greens and beef and greens and greens and greens. So they clearly prize these vegetables. It's just something they don't always have access to. Another change from the 18th century to today are some of the pests that you have to deal with that, that weren't, hadn't been introduced. <laughs> yes. yes, I resent having to um, worry about the imported cabbage caterpillar, for example, the white butterfly that all gardeners know. That doesn't arrive in this country until 1852. The Colorado potato beetle, the Mexican bean beetle, never make within 1,000 miles of Virginia. I would not know slugs. I would not know snails. We get nearly a 300-year hiatus on vegetable pests because our vegetables are coming to us as seeds, and we're leaving the pests behind. They do, of course, eventually catch up. 
Are you able to use varieties of plants that are well suited to the Virginia garden or the Virginia region? You're trying to limit yourself to 18th century uh, Williamsburg, which would have had a heavy English influence. But I wonder if there are native Virginia plants that might be more happy uh, or, or better suited to resist some of the um, wilts and bugs and things that, that are in this climate, part of this climate. Well, um, of course, the gardening techniques gives you the ability to grow plants which are not suited to your exact climate. But there are certainly native plants we adopt immediately. Of course, corn, as we mentioned, is the number one crop, um, New World crop, throughout North America, both for the native people and for the English as a staple food. And now this is all field corn. There is no sweet corn in the 18th century. So we're talking cornbread, corn, grits, hominy, etc. The New World bean, the green bean or kidney bean, is probably the most prized of all the New World vegetables, both on English tables here in Virginia and home in England. Um, the squashes makes up the other part of what's known as the three sisters that the native people um, provide us um, with. Squashes um, are as important for feeding livestock as they are for people, it seems. Then we have the sweet potatoes here when we get here. The white potato is a little bit slower. It does not arrive until the 1750s and starts to replace um, the European starch vegetables such as parsnips and turnips in our diet to the point that most Americans eat very little in the way of parsnips and turnips any longer. The white potato has entirely replaced that in our diet. Remembering that you told us that the vegetable garden would have been a, a luxury for, for the richer sort, what did we find were the, the favorite vegetables, the most prized crops, uh, among those households that could afford to keep a garden? Um, the vegetables you would find only in the gentry garden, so things like artichokes, which are just forming up on my plants right now, and artichokes are tremendously popular. Um, cauliflower, you provide your guests with a cauliflower on a Friday evening, people will talk, be talking about you on a Saturday morning. This is a real luxury item. There's some things which are difficult for us to grow, such as celery. Celery does better in a muck soil a little bit farther north of here. Leeks also does a little bit better a little farther north of here. Um, so those, again, are considered luxury items. And then broccoli. Now, my broccoli is a purple broccoli, much different looking than your broccoli, which is Calabrese. It's only been at the market since probably the 1930s, very modern vegetable. Broccoli was a brand-new introduction that was seldom grown. And what's your favorite thing to come out of that garden? Oh, that's, that's like asking me who my favorite child is. That's very difficult. My <laughs> favorite vegetable is the one that's in season. Well, you know, and that's a good point, too. You started out by talking about the availability of vegetables year-round. I mean, in the 18th century, there wasn't a choice. But today, we're, we're allowed to teach something in this garden about seasonality, about local crops, about sustainability. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, buying local is a big movement, and I think a very valuable movement here. We cannot continue to import things from Argentina, for example, every year. So I think locally grown produce is important. Um, it provides jobs. It's easier on the land. I think seasonality in the garden today um, not only gives you better quality vegetables because you're not getting frozen vegetables or imported vegetables, you're getting locally produced vegetables. Um, there's the perennial question of what do you have for dinner? If you keep a garden, that kind of guides you. You walk out and you say, oh, we're having cabbage tonight or we're having beets tonight. And you start to fall in line with that season, seasonality of the vegetables, which is just a nice way to eat and live, I think. I can't have you here without asking for some free advice. So I said I'm a weekend gardener. What's the best thing? What's the single best thing I can do for my garden? Start small. Most people start too big. New ground weeds will overwhelm you the first couple of years. And so you can start with a 10 by 10 or 10 by 15 plus, something that you can manage. And then gardening doesn't become such an onerous task, which I think so often turns people off to the experience. Wesley, thank you so much for being our guest today, and I hope all our listeners will stop by to talk with you some more when they find you uh, in the Colonial Garden, right across from Bruton Parish Church in Colonial Williamsburg's historic area. Bring the kids. We have work for them. Do you have a question or suggestion for the show? Leave a comment at podcast.history.org.